beginning with verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all of your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at appointed times, their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. On the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation or, or a Sabbath day. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall also do no customary work on it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. To be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil. An offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be wine, one fourth of a hen. You shall neither eat bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the, wane off, of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer... A new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering. And their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it, it shall be a statue forever. And all of your dwellings throughout your generations, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation, you shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. 
It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer a male offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on the same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in the soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. Any person who does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work, no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all of your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. To offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. Also, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest. Again, we're still talking about tabernacles. And on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the broths of, of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you shall dwell in booths, tabernacles, for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Father, Lord, we ask that as we take time to work our way, through a section of incredible scripture, of radical scripture. Lord, not only would you speak to us individually, personally, but help us understand this, the bigger blueprint that you're articulating through these things. Give us your spirit that we might know spiritual things. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen. And the ordering of his people, and the particular crafting, of the way in which this Israelite society was to function. God found it important, critically important, to structure first their week with a Sabbath day of rest. But he also structured their yearly calendar to revolve around these seven unique festivals. As we just read, Three of these feasts were to happen during a two-week period in the springtime. Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. 
The fourth of these feasts was to occur 50 days later, at the start of summer. This feast was known as the Feast of Weeks, or as we also know, the Feast of Pentecost. The remaining three feasts were to take place in the fall, the seventh month specifically, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Surprisingly, on a, on a side note, you'll notice that Hanukkah isn't mentioned in this section dealing with the main festivals of Israel. The reason for this is that while it's an important commemoration of events that were related to the Maccabean Revolution that occurred in the 160 B.C., the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, has, interestingly enough, zero scriptural basis. Uh, in fact, the Bible makes no mention at all of Hanukkah. According to Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, God was clear, crystal clear, to the nation of Israel that, quote, three times a year, all of your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place that He chooses. Now, initially we know that this would be the tabernacle located in, in a town known as Shiloh, before later being the temple that was located there in Jerusalem. He says, all of your males, three times a year, come and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now because Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, all took place really within days of each other, one trip in the spring would allow you to celebrate all three. One trip would suffice. Since the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost follows 50 days later, making another journey before the summer heat set in wouldn't be terribly inconveniencing. That said, the only fall festival where your attendance was required by God was this seventh and final festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in the 15th day of the seventh month and lasted an entire week. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, they also occurred in the seventh month, but earlier. Feast of Trumpets was on the first day of the seventh month. Uh, the tenth day ends up being the Day of Atonement. Both of these two feasts, though, they demanded a day of Sabbath rest, of solemn Sabbath rest, and largely dictated the activities of the priests, not necessarily the people at large, meaning that the Israelites could observe trumpets as well as the Day of Atonement, anywhere. Like, you didn't have to come to the tabernacle or the temple uh, to celebrate. A pilgrimage wasn't required. Now, before we get into all of these things, these seven feasts, which are amazing, th there is an overarching point that I want to take time to, to address that most overlook. In this new cultural and societal structure that God is crafting for His people, something to be distinct and different, it's interesting that in addition to everyone taking a break from their work one day a week, God also requires taking three vacations a year. To attend these five festivals. He also mandates another two days to observe trumpets. Or one day for trumpets and then two days for the day of atonement. Like, there's no debating, and this blows my mind. Uh, that within the Genesis record. God indeed established 
that man was created to work. Six days a week, you were created to work. And we also know, according to the Genesis record, that it was sin that turned our work and made it labor. But God and His grace knew how important it would be for humanity that He never forget that He worked to live and He didn't live to work. And to hammer this point home, God crafts not just the week around rest, but their entire calendar around rest. Moving beyond the meaning and the significance of these feasts, which are deep and radical, it's just clear from an overarching standpoint, when you kind of take a step back and place this idea in context, that God knew, (laughs) He knew what a lot of us have forgotten, that taking necessary time to rest, and taking time to play, enjoying the life that God created us for, was of such significance, importance, that he goes ahead and he just mandates, don't mess with this. Here's your work week. Take a day off. It's a non-negotiable. And here's a calendar filled with festivals that would require both rest and play. It's as though God, here in this chapter, as He's crafting this people to be different and distinct, to be His, to be holy and sanctified, He's like, guys, you're going to work a lot. I created you to work. In fact, six days, you work. You get up and you grind, and then you tap out and you do it again. But on the seventh day, I want you to rest, to relax. And not only that, but in the spring when you're done with your work, and then in the summer before it gets hot, and then in the fall when you finish these three times, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the entire week off, sometimes two, and have a party. Enjoy it. Have fun. Celebrate. Spend time with community. You see, this ordering of their lives was God's way, ultimately, in my opinion, of stressing to His people four important realities that in our culture we have largely forgotten. Number one, if you're a note taker, you might have wanted to jot them down. As the people of God, life should not be a slog we endure but an experience we enjoy. Let me repeat that. As the people of God, which you and I are, life should not be a slog we endure, but an experience we enjoy. Isn't it true that the more days you work without a break, or the longer you go without any type of vacation, the worse you feel physically, emotionally, Yes, even spiritually. That life, the life God created you for and then Jesus died on the cross to redeem you for becomes so unenjoyable that it's, it's just a grind. Without rest, without play, without taking time. Instead of enjoying the day that the Lord has made and rejoicing in it. 
you just find yourselves trying to plow through. Does this describe your life at all? The mundane? The grind? Do you enjoy life? Understand, the rat race, it's not the way God wants life, especially the life of His people, to be. So set time aside, one day a week, and vacation. Number two, while there is value in hard work, the structure of Israel tells us that there's equal value in good rest. Let me repeat that. While there is value in hard work, there is equal value in good rest. You know the irony to all of this is that we've convinced ourselves in this this fast-paced, productivity-driven society where we're always chasing and chasing. We're the hamster on the wheel, always wanting more, always going, always going, always going. This whole thing, we've convinced ourselves that it's wrong to enjoy a lazy day. Like, have you ever had one of those days where you just hit the wall and you're like, I'm not doing anything? Do you feel guilty? I know I do. Just speaking honestly. There's so many things on my mind I know I need to do. There's so many checklists that I've 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 got to cover. So much, so much, so much. That when I just kind of tap out for a day, because I know I need it, I know it's sanctified, I know it's a holy, I just feel terrible about it. Friend, I want to set you free of that. Don't feel terrible about it. Enjoy it. There's value and good rest. How about sleeping in when you're tired? Instead of just pushing and pushing and pushing. Like, you know what? I got to take care of my body. I got to take care of this temple. You know, I need to sleep in. I'm going to take half a day. What about clocking out early to catch a ball game? Do you do that? See, our society says, no, 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 no. But wait a second. If, if I work to live, I don't live to work, then there are times that i got to let my work know where it is in the hierarchy of my existence. I don't need more money. What's the point of more money if I can't use it or enjoy it? Or just taking an extra day because the kids are out of school. You see, in our minds, we, we, we convince ourselves, well, well, this will put me behind or, or at a disadvantage. The truth is it's the opposite. Hey, there is value in working hard. But there's equal value in getting good rest. You know, data upon data upon data shows that a rested and happy person is a much more effective employee, or for that matter, boss. You are less productive when you wear yourself thin. You are more productive when you take a moment and relax. Friend, if you're miserable and you're tired, there's no way to keep that from bleeding over into your job. Toxic work environments are largely the results of toxic people. And how do we get that way? We don't take care of ourselves. Number three, this structure to life was God's way of reminding his people that their value was not to be based upon productivity, but his grace. Like, think about the structure to this. 
work six, and then trust me with the seventh. That, that concept, we'll see it as we continue in Leviticus. It'll get ex- expanded. It'll be work the land 49 and then take a whole year off. What? Take a whole year and do nothing? Yeah, that's exactly what God commands. You, the land, everybody tap out for a whole year. Interestingly, they didn't obey that for 490 years. So if you do the math, God removes them from the land for how long? 70 years. You never obeyed me, so I'm going to kick you out of the land because the land needs to rest. You need to rest. You see, we got in our minds that human value is about productivity. It's about what I'm producing. No, 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 no. God sets this whole framework up to remind his people over and over and over again. It's not about what you produce. That's not your value. That's not your worth. It's that I've made you my people. That's your value. That's your worth. That's where your dignity is. I I know what I'm about to say is going to come across really cliche. So I'm going to kind of get that out of the way. But think about it. You are a human being, not a human doing. You're a human being, not a human doing. Like a job is important. Work is healthy it's a redeemable exercise but please always know your worth as a child of God has nothing to do with what you accomplish it has nothing to do with how productive you are or what you achieve or the deals you close or the size of your portfolio or bank account being his is infinitely more important than doing anything. When your life transitions to the next, there's only one thing you really want to hear from Jesus. It's not well done, good and faithful mechanic, or artist, or fill in the blank. Well done, you you had a lot of money. You did really good for your, it's all still there, that's okay. No, your entire evaluation will be one thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. It's about serving God as a response to His grace. It's not about what you do. It's about being His. That's what matters. Number four, finally. Taking time off was a practical way of helping his people reject the trappings of self-sufficiency by forcing them to actively place their trust in the provisions of God. Well, Zach, this sounds great, but I don't know if I can actually afford to take a day off. I don't know if I can afford to take a week for vacation. Friend, if God values such things, you know, the creator and all, Here's a better question I want you to consider. Can God yield a greater increase in six days than you can in seven? Like, really? Like, can you do more with, let's say, 48 weeks or 52 weeks of the year than God could do with 48? 
God, I know, you, I, I know you're a little bit better than I am, but I mean, that's, that's a close one. Really? Like at some point, we got to take a, a step back and say, God, <laughs> you've said this is important. And so, you know, I'm just going to trust you. Like that was the entire concept of the Sabbath. That was the entire idea. Again, I don't want to get cliche, but the, the most successful fast food restaurant that exists is the one that you can't go to on Sunday. There's a greater increase where they can honor a day. Like, trust me, you're not going to lack. You're, you're not going to get back from taking that vacation and think, man, that wasn't worth it. Has anyone ever gone to the beach and came back with that reaction? Man, I wasted a week of my life. No, you're going to come back rested and refreshed, healthy, feeling good. <laughs> Can't wait to go back. And that was the cyclical nature of these festivals in the spring. And then again in the summer. And then in the fall. Beautiful thing. One of the interesting realities about our society is that we actually have a five-day work week with a two-day weekend. You can thank our founders for struggling to identify what the Sabbath really was for that. Couldn't decide on a Saturday couldn't, or a Sunday, so they were like, well, we'll just have to honor both of them. That's really why we have Saturday and Sunday. The Jews and the Christians couldn't figure it out. Thanks. It's two extra days. You know, I should, I should add, though, that there are some Christians that reject the idea of a two-day weekend because they claim that God's ideal is that we work six days. In fact, the, the church that I worked at before, we, we worked a six-day week. We had one day off, and we worked six days because, well, that's just good enough for God. It should be good enough for us. Personally, I believe that's moronic. With all respect to my previous employer. It was my dad, sorry. Like in this Jewish culture, this ancient Jewish culture, what's interesting is that, that work and home were intertwined. They farmed. It was an agricultural kind of a context. Your home and your work were one. If you weren't growing food, you were, you were raising cattle. It was all home, work, it was all together. Today, though, in our modern context, the two are often separated. You have your home and you have work. What this means is that in Israel, one day off of work was adequate. But in our context, we need two. You see, having two days off of official work, it creates a dynamic where you have one day to work at home, around the house, and still maintain a Sabbath day of rest and relaxation. Just as your pastor to let you know, because I work on Sundays, I try to take Friday and Saturday. Friday tends to end up being my lazy day. Where I try to tap out. The kids are in school. I can sleep in. It's okay. And then, and then Saturday becomes the, the get, try to get the yard work done, try to get the, to some of those projects. But you got to have that day. Where you just rest and play. One more thing I want to add. <laughs> Prioritize the vacation. I mean, I'm saying this to myself. 
Like, if you can't afford to go someplace, that's okay. Stay at home. And, and I know it's not the same, but you're still honoring a principle. Like, the statistics show what's interesting in America is that the majority of you actually don't take all of the vacation you're given. And as the people of God, that's a shame. Should it never be said of those Christians, man, they don't honor their vacation time. Should it be said of Christians, man, if they have vacation, they take it because life is way more than their job. See what I'm saying? There should be no surprise that we are a nation of unhappy work alcoholics. Now, as we unpack this chapter, we're going to encounter here two interesting phrases that establish some really important context. This is, this is a radical chapter. Like God will refer here to these various feasts, festivals, that's the first word, as being holy convocations. You, you notice that both of these two phrases are used all throughout the, the, the passage. Now, in the Hebrew language, this word that we have translated as holy convocations, it's rather straightforward. There's no mystery to it. The word describes <clears throat> a gathering or a celebration. Think of it as a sanctified party. It's a holy time. That said, this other phrase that we have, the, the word that's connected to the feast of the Lord, that word in the Hebrew it's more complex and more dynamic. In its most simplified meaning, the word refers to an appointed time. Or you could think of it as a set date, an appointment. That the people were to gather together for all of these various celebrations. And yet, don't miss this, blows my mind. Scholars of the ancient Hebrew language, of which I am not, <laughs> I don't speak Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew. But those that do, that have degrees in these things, and I kept running across this over and over and over again, they believe that this Hebrew word, feast, festival, can be translated, don't miss this, as rehearsals. That they're rehearsals. Like, not only... Were these designated gatherings established to commemorate something important that God had done or was presently doing in a specific moment in time? But these celebrations intended to act as kind of this, this community rehearsal for something much more significant that God was going to do in the future on that date. They're prophetic. Like what this means is these seven feasts not only commemorate a past work of God, past work in their lives, not only do they celebrate God's present involvement, but they were designed to anticipate a work that God was going to bring about in their future. I don't know. I know that sounds crazy. But these seven feasts were God's way of having His people not just take time off of work to rest and play and relax, but to come together and rehearse something He was going to do later on. Something to come. Like amazingly, 
these activities associated with these seven feasts not only illustrate the work of God, what this would be in their nation, what it would, what it would look like, but it also establishes the timing. You see, the timing of the feasts are predictive as to when that work would be accomplished in their midst. To this point, Jesus says something really interesting in this tit for tat. He's going back and forth with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew chapter 16, they come, they're testing Jesus. They're wanting to see a sign from heaven. But Jesus answers and he says to them, he says, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you'll say it'll be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Or you can't discern how God has appointed things. Appointments. You see, what makes Leviticus 23 so radical and really worthy of our consideration, which is why it's going to take us two weeks to get through it, is that God is not only explaining to Israel here what his plan is, what he's going to do, but he's telling them when he's going to do it. It's amazing. These seven feasts are basically a timeline for God's entire handling of the Jewish people through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, in writing about the feasts, in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he says this. He describes these feasts as a shadow of things to come, but the body, the substance, is of Jesus. Now, as we go through these chapters, I plan to address three different components to each feast. We're going to talk about, first, what past work the feast commemorated, like what God did that they're celebrating. Also, presently, the second thing we'll address is what current work they're celebrating. So what past work they're commemorating, what present work they're celebrating, but then we'll also address what future work the feast itself anticipated. If you're a note taker, I just want to kind of let you know up front what it's all about. Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits we'll see were fulfilled in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, was fulfilled with the birth of the church. The final three fall festivals will find their prophetic fulfillment, I believe, in the rapture, the Feast of Trumpets. The Great Tribulation, which will be connected to the Day of Atonement. And a final gathering in the millennial reign of Christ, which is all footnoted in the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, two weeks, we'll get to all of it. Let's look at the first two feasts again, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Go back to verse 4. We're told, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. On the seventh day, on the 15th day of the seventh month, same month, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days, you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. Do no work on it. But you shall have an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Now, the Passover. The day of Passover. 
officially began, took place, at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. Uh, the Hebrew religious calendar began in the springtime, sometime kind of coinciding with our March or April. According, though, to Exodus 12, the Passover lamb itself would be chosen a few days earlier on the 10th day of the month. So the 14th day at twilight's Passover. But on the 10th day, so earlier in the week, is when the lamb would be chosen and then presented and inspected. What, it, what this did is it made Passover, while there was the day of Passover, it made it a week-long celebration that culminated with the Passover Seder or this dinner that they would have together. Now, though the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we're told in our passage, began on the 15th day of the same month, the day after Passover, because the Jews officially marked a day as beginning and ending at twilight, not midnight, but twilight, in many ways, the Passover itself initiated the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Without question, these two feasts, Passover and Unleavened Bread, are unavoidably intertwined simply from a historical context. What it commemorated. In Exodus 12, Moses instructed the children of Israel. So they're slaves in bondage in Egypt. And he tells them to, to select a lamb, a spotless lamb, and to slaughter it, and to spread its blood on the doorposts of their homes, so that later that night when the angel of death came through the land to kill the firstborn, all the firstborn of Egypt, the angel might pass over any house that had the blood of the lamb. This is where we get the term Passover, to pass over. The only thing that would spare the Israelites from this tenth and final plague, aimed at breaking Pharaoh's will, would be the blood, the blood covering of the lamb. In fact, the events of this evening would end up proving to be the very tipping point by which Pharaoh finally said enough's enough, told the Hebrews to go the next day. And anticipating that, God's deliverance, knowing they'd need to move quickly, in addition to the instructions about the lamb, Moses also told the people that that night, they needed to bake bread for themselves. But they needed to do it without leaven. They had no time to allow the bread to rise. So don't put in the yeast. Don't put in the leaven. Flat cakes. Quick. we got to move. Now in order to celebrate this past work of God delivering them from their bondage in Egypt, Jews, once a year, would make the pilgrimage to the temple, the tabernacle, to offer an innocent lamb as an atonement for their sins. They did this every single year. We see Jesus participating himself in an act of faith. A lamb would be sacrificed for a family. They would believe that it would be that sacrifice and the blood that would spare them an eternal death by passing over any of their sins on account of the blood. Then, following God's forgiveness, extended through this sacrifice, it was customary that same night, the next morning, that they would go around the house and they would remove any bits of leaven. They'd empty the pantries, sweep out the kitchen. They would remove all leaven from the house. And here's why. They believed that the power of the blood of the Lamb, what was accomplished, 
was illustrated in the removing of leaven, this picture of sin, that the blood of the lamb removed any sin. This is also why they would, for the next seven days, only eat unleavened bread. This was demonstrating now their holiness and their purity before the Lord because of the sacrifice. While both feasts commemorated the previous work of God, freeing them from Egypt, as well as a present celebration of God's current provision, atonement for sin, the fundamental fulfillment of both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where is it found? What did these things anticipate? What were they rehearsing that it pointed forward to? The work of Jesus. What Jesus would accomplish, guess when? On these two days, Passover and Unleavened Bread, some 1,500 years later. You see, as the Lamb of God, Jesus was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. On what day? Passover. And Him, and through our faith in the covering of His blood, we are saved from death. God's wrath passes over us. But most incredibly, our sin is also removed. You see, Jesus died on Passover. But what happened? They took His body, they removed Him, and they laid Him to rest on what day? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Your glorying is no good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he's building on this idea. Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you might be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. That's what Paul says. You're cleansed. You're purified. There's no sin. Why? For indeed Christ, Paul says, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Christ being our Passover results in our lives being unleavened, sinless, justified. When God sees you, He sees you just as if I'd never sinned. How amazing that in John John 1 verse 29, as John the baptizer sees Jesus approaching, what does He declare? He says, Behold, the Lamb not of man, but of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Friend, the removing of leaven directly following the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, don't miss this, because it reveals an incredible reality, something very applicational. Your sanctification will always follow your salvation. What does that mean, Pastor Zach? What that means is don't ever fall into this trap that Satan will whisper in your ear. He might be doing it right now. The lie that you need to clean up your life. i got to sweep out all the leaven before I come to Christ. It's a lie from hell. Unleavened bread follows the Passover. Sanctification comes after salvation. You see, the Bible says, come to Jesus as you are. And then what results? A cleansing, a purifying. If you could better yourself for God, then you wouldn't need Jesus. But you can't. The Lamb of God, who taketh the sins of the world. The third and final of these spring festivals, and we'll end here, 
was the Feast of First Fruits. Look back, verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, said, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. Like, and, and this would have a future fulfillment because they're not in the land yet. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. Its drink offering will, shall be wine, <clears throat> one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. So the Lord wants the first taste. That's what he's saying. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Now, regarding the timing of this feast, you notice we're not given a specific day. Instead, the only detail that's provided is in verse 11. Look again. Don't miss this. We read that this feast of first fruits was to happen on the day after the Sabbath. And in context, this would be the Sunday following the first Saturday, following the Passover. Okay? Follow me? Passover, then find the Sabbath, then the next day. The whole point is this is on Sunday. Now, within Israel, the first crop to be harvested in the spring after the winter rains would be barley. So the first fruits, this is a barley harvest. That would then be followed by the wheat harvest in the summer and then grapes and olives in the fall. And an act of continual gratitude Concerning God's provisions for another year, another successful crop, the Feast of First Fruits, it was just that. It was a celebration of thanksgiving that God had proven Himself faithful to provide according to their most basic needs. Now, <laughs> what makes this radical is that what happened on the Sunday following the Sabbath, following the Passover. <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead, being what? The first fruits of the resurrection. You know, it's not an accident when you go back and you, you read through this on your own. There were no sin nor trespass offerings connected with this feast at all. And why? There was no sin. No sin remained following Jesus' resurrection, did it? He paid it in full. Our discretions, indiscretions gone once and for all. But what's also interesting, go back, look. There were two offerings associated with first fruits, right? There was the burnt offering, which we've talked about all the way back in chapter 1, uh, which was an offering that pointed to God's offering. It was about God's sacrifice, totally consumed. But notice that there would be a grain offering. So this is a, a, an offering of thanksgiving, a response offering to God's grace. A grain offering, which would, which would be what? Look at it. It would be a fine flour mixed with oil, which would be what? Unleavened bread. Okay. And then there would also be, look at it, a drink offering, which was to be what? Wine. What two elements do we partake of and remembrance of Jesus. Not a dead Jesus, but a resurrected Jesus. 
the bread unleavened and the wine. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this connection. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. Notice he uses this, this language of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man, Adam, came death, by man, Jesus, came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ, well, at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, when he puts to an end all rule and authority and power. Friend, we can be rest assured that Jesus was the accepted lamb, that his covering was sufficient. We can be confident of our present righteousness before God, our sinless state before the throne. We can be confident of these things for only one reason. Jesus rose from the dead being our first fruits. You see, as the first fruit of a harvest we will participate in, we can be sure, confident, secure. Resurrection also awaits us. The question you should consider is which resurrection? For there are two. There will be a resurrection to life and rewards in heaven. There will also be a resurrection of death and judgment and separation. Next Sunday, we'll work our way through these final four feasts. Pentecost, trumpets, the Day of Atonement, tabernacles. But I want to close our time with a much larger reality that this passage illustrates. It's a point I'm not going to hammer. I just want to be clear. I want you to be clear. What this tells us these feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, not just commemorating a, a past work of God and celebrating a present work of God, but anticipating, rehearsing what Jesus would come to do for the people and his death and his burial and then in his resurrection, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. Exactingly on the same day. What this tells us, if you just take a step back, God's plan for Israel, God's plan for humanity, God's plan for you and for me has always centered around, circulated around, focused on Jesus. Now the Jews missed it and they rejected him. And as a result, we'll see it next Sunday. They have and will suffer. But God's plan for Israel is still what? It's still Jesus. Like whether you reject Jesus or not, God's plan for you <laughs> is Jesus. So much so, what this tells us, His only plan for you is Jesus. Well, that just doesn't work for me. Okay. W what do you want? Because there's no plan B. There's no alternative. Well, me and God will be good some other way. Really? How so? It's Jesus. Whether you like it or not, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. 
So, Father, we thank you for your